Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval terms apply stock have too high a price buy a slice trade fractional shares of your favorite u.s stocks and etfs in any dollar amount you choose with zero commissions online get started at fidelity.com slash stocks by the slice fractional share quantities can be entered to three decimal places if the value of the order is at least one cent dollar-based trades can be entered to two decimal places sell orders are subject to an activity assessment fee from one cent to three cents per one thousand dollars of principal fidelity brokerage services llc member nyse sipc oh hey it's your camp counselor who's only two years older than you but seems just ancient Allie ward back with another episode of ologies this episode has been roughly 11 years in the making Well, I guess 5,000 years in the making. Now listen, if you're already into Egyptology, this episode offers kind of a different look at Egyptian history and its parallels to our culture now. If you have no knowledge of Egyptology at all, don't worry. We're going to talk about cats and tombs and hieroglyphs and ancient aliens. That's going to happen also. But first, a quick thanks to the patrons at patreon.com slash ologies who donate a dollar or more a month just to keep the podcast going. You're doing it. This podcast, which this week was in the top 10 science podcasts on iTunes. Thank you as always for that. It's made totally independently. Patrons fund it so I can hire an editor and get these out on time every Tuesday. So thank you to everyone who supports the show. Um, also, by putting ologiesmerch.com items onto your body. The link is in the show notes. We have a bunch of fall collegies, new stuff up that's just excellent. It's very scholastic looking. Um, you can also support for $0 just by tweeting or gramming or telling a friend, say, hey, listen to this if you want. You can rate and review and subscribe. That also helps, you know, Ward here reads all your reviews because I find them quite touching. And to prove it, I'm going to read one by JVC55, who said, if you like learning things from people who are so genuinely excited that sometimes they have to swear, then this is the podcast for you. Five million stars. I heckin' agree, man. Okay, Egyptology. Let's get into it. Obviously, it is a study of Egypt. Come on. But where does the word Egypt come from? So, It comes from a word meaning the Temple of Ta at Karnak. This is in Luxor, which is apparently not just a moderately priced theme hotel in Nevada. In fact, it's near a place called Memphis. Did you know there's a Memphis in Egypt? It's on the Nile River. And Memphis, Tennessee is on the Mississippi River. That's why they named it that. Did you know that? I did not know that. So I already went down like an hour-long rabbit hole researching this episode, and we're still in the intro. So let's get onto it. So on to the ologist. So 11 years ago, I was watching some late night TV and I saw an Egyptologist as a guest on Craig Ferguson. And I was like, what? Egyptologists can be on late night talk shows just chatting about tombs and monuments and female rulers alongside people like Cedric the Entertainer, who was also on that episode promoting a slapstick film about a corpse in a hotel room. Anyway, I'm like, this Egyptologist rules. And I started looking into her work. And whenever her name would come up in the news with a new book or a new show on Discovery, I would be like, yes, woman, 
get it. So cut to me starting ologies thinking, dude, what if I did Egyptology and I got to interview her? I w- would I die on the spot? I, there's only one way to find out. So I emailed her and we set a date. She was like, sure. I drove an hour to her house, so excited, so nervous. I started setting up my mics and I realized with some horror that my Zoom recorder was not in my equipment bag. And my face became very hot and red and sitting at her kitchen table, I almost just died of sheer mortification. Like, mummy me up, I'm done. But she was so understanding and I slinked off to my car, just defeated by my own idiocy. We set another date, I showed up again, this time with a bottle of Japanese whiskey as an I'm sorry token. It was 10 a.m., so we did not drink it while recording. But we were off to the races, I had my equipment, We did the interview, and I wish this episode was like six hours long because there are so many things I wanted to ask her. There's so much to know about ancient Egypt, but we focused a lot on her really astonishing work uh, writing about female kings and the sociology of ancient and modern patriarchies, and also her work as an expert in coffins, and if there's a mummy's curse, and dongs of antiquity, and if you don't have a favorite Egyptologist, well, hot damn, you're about to. She's a professor of Egyptian art and architecture at UCLA, and she's been on archaeological digs, curated museum exhibits, traveled the world inspecting Egyptian coffins, has appeared on multiple Discovery Channel and History Channel archaeology shows. She wrote, The Woman Who Would Be King, Hatshepsut's Rise to Power in Ancient Egypt, and has another book due out in November called When Women Rule the World, Six Queens of Egypt. So straight out of the gate, we started talking about my forgetting equipment the first time and the curse of multitasking and coffins and her double identities. And she's just amazing. And I'm so honored to dig in to this chat with Egyptologist Dr. Kathleen, aka Kara Cooney. You realize when you're doing too many things, when, when you forget stuff like, like when I showed up in Egypt without any flashlights at all to look at the coffins (laughs) and I realized, then I had to go to the store and buy some things and I'd have UV light, but I realized I was just doing too many things. Too many things. Do you need a UV light to look at coffins? It's very helpful because the UV, you can see, um, you get an idea of whether the varnish is modern or ancient because in museums, they've messed up these coffins so much by overpainting them, over varnishing them, restoring them. Mm -hmm. And so then you have to figure out first what's ancient and what's modern. And this happens more in European museums than in Egyptian museums. It happens more in Protestant places than in Catholic places. (laughs) Really? Why do you think that is? Because there's this Protestant work ethic and people feel they should be doing something. And so they mess up their own pieces and some... Coffins north of the of the Protestant Catholic divide in Europe are more fake than they are real. And the amount of time it would take to take all of that new paint and new varnish off is pretty extensive and nobody does it. And I saw one coffin in Leiden in the Netherlands and I was standing with the curator and we took out the old publication and we realized the entire thing was repainted with new paint. They it's just, just yeah. idle hands. Idle hands are the are the I, devil's work. What I is guess. It? <gasps> in places where you take more coffee breaks. <laughs> and where work is not as 
um, much of a driver of human identity, there the coffins are less messed up. Oh, my God. So it's funny. Oh, um, no, that's just an epiphany yeah. waiting to happen. Uh, do less. Yeah, do less. Okay. Do less. Don't mess with your objects. Okay. You don't need to. So I have a bazillion questions. Yeah, I'd like go for it. Go for it. As fast as I can. In addressing you, Kara Cooney, Kathleen Cooney, or Dr. Kathleen Cooney, uh, yes, it's a problem on many levels. It's a problem that my mother started by uh-huh. naming me Kathleen, which is my grandmother's name on my father's Irish side. Uh, and yet she didn't like the name Kathy. So she nicknamed me Kara in advance. Oh. And Kara obviously fits my personality better. No one can pronounce Kathleen, Kathleen, Catherine. And I say, no, it's Kathleen. And they look at me like I'm crazy. And so that's my real name on every document that's official. And Kara appears nowhere that's official. So I, I use it to create kind of a double personality where Kathleen M. Cooney is my academic name mm-hmm. and Kara Cooney is my popular names. I don't put the doctor in front of my name because I'm also, I think I have other things that give me that authority. I'm chair of my department of Near Eastern Languages and Cultures at UCLA. I've been a professor there since 2009. I have about 10 graduate students, many of whom have finished with their own PhDs and call me Dr. Motar. So I'm cool with just Kara Cooney. And women in power is something that Definitely, you were an authority on, especially looking at it through the the lens of Egyptology. So your your forthcoming book, uh, which is so exciting, when women rule the world, six queens of Egypt, coming out on election day, was that an accident? It wasn't an accident for the editors in Nat Geo, but I didn't tell them to do that. This really? is, you know, these women, they keep following me and haunting me and, and lurking behind me and filling my, my footprints as I walk because I didn't want to be known as the chiclet nonfiction girl. Before she became an author and a UCLA professor, Kara got her BA in Humanities and German in Austin, Texas, and her PhD in Egyptian Art and Archaeology at Johns Hopkins University. And she didn't intend to focus on female rulers for her literary career, but they kept coming up in the classes she was teaching. And she says by writing the books, she's seen new patterns in history that she hadn't even seen in the classroom before. But before we get to that, let's start at the very, very beginning. Let's go way back. Well, let's start at the beginning now. Let's start about why you're an Egyptologist. And I know that this question comes up like daily for you. And the answer is always like, I don't know. Kind of. You saw some books when you were a kid. Uh, Your parents brought back some books from the London Museum. Right. From the British Museum in London. Yes. Um, And I remember when my mom brought those books home, she brought a book home on mummies and she brought these, do you know the publisher Usborne? It's a wonderful publisher. They do children's um, books that have all kinds of drawings about daily life or little detailed, you know, very detailed, tiny drawings of people tanning hides or washing clothes or what it's like to take a bath or whatever, and all little animated figures and then little captions connected to all of these pictures. I just looked up these books by the publisher Usborne and I can confirm that they are cute Cute as as hell. And I had one for Rome, one for the medieval world, medieval Europe, one for Egypt. And the last one, I can't remember right now, but Egypt was the one that just struck me as the most interesting. It, 
it bit me and it never let go. And yes, you're right. This is the question that I'm asked the most out of any other. Why are you an Egyptologist? And I always give a two pronged answer. Number one, I have no freaking idea. Mm -hmm. Um, It's the one question that an Egyptologist would never ask another Egyptologist or a specialist of ancient Rome would never ask another Romanist because it's it's a ridiculously stupid thing to do. You have to spend eight years longer, eight to 10 years longer in school than everybody else. You live a life of poverty in comparison to other people who have the same education level. It's not, it's not a clever thing to do. It is a calling. It's something you do because you love it or you just, you, you have to solve these problems. And so we don't ask each other that, but other people ask us that all the time. And so my answer is, I don't know why. It's something that is that I'm curious about myself, why I see the world better through the lens of an ancient authoritarian regime than I do just by looking at my own world around me. But it's the truth. And then number two, the the real answer to your question is I'm an upper middle class white chick, which means that while my brother was encouraged to become a lawyer mm-hmm. and he did, even though he would be a, would have been a great academic, I was allowed to follow my heart as a woman. And there was still when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, this idea that I was not necessarily meant to be the breadwinner in my family. Um, and I was allowed to to be more impractical, imprudent. And and I, I was allowed to do that. Just take note, the following should be considered a tutorial by Kara Cooney on acknowledging privilege. She just nails it. So and, and of course, the upper middle class part is pretty clear. Um, I had the education level and access to these more um, difficult to acquire academic cultures, spaces. And and so it was something that I was able to move into quite easily that other people have a much harder time finding their way into. Or if you grow up African-American in this country and you're constantly assaulted with white privilege all around you, if you have a chance to study the ancient world, you might do it through a different political lens, mm-hmm. through a lens of Afrocentrism rather than the lens of the classical white world or what is perceived as the classical white world. And most people who study ancient Egypt in the United States and in Britain and in Europe are white people. It's a very colonial science and it's off-putting for people of color. And do you come up against uh, any resistance or friction with that? And and kind of how do you grapple with that? It's a very interesting subject to me, how the ancient world is politicized, claimed and used to bolster certain kinds of identities. It's something that we need to pay attention to. There are reasons that when the LACMA exhibition for King Tut came out in 2005 and he was depicted as a white Barbara Streisand (laughs) in in the reconstruction that the, some French team made and National Geographic put on their cover. There's a reason that we have people picketing out front of the museum saying King Tut is back and he's black because there are claims about his racial and ethnic identity that, that are done in a, in a way that is serving certain populations. And, um, if we if we're not aware of that and why those things are happening, then we need to step back and, and think about it. So race and identity, it, these are things that I apply to my my classes and that ancient Egypt is very helpful because it provides a, a means of talking about these things. But a thousand years removed. Kara also explained that even some well-known Egyptian-born Egyptologists have been known to whitewash ancient Egyptians because of just long-entrenched colonialism and racism that identifies power with European colonists. And that misrepresentation of Egyptians is tragic. And she says, 
pretty frankly, not accurate. As I always say, if any of the Egyptians that I know lived in Alabama in the 50s, they would have sat at the back of the bus or or reached a lot of or, or created a lot of problems for themselves. So... And how much of your work, your career as an Egyptologist is spent in Egypt and how much is spent in museums around the world and in classrooms here in L.A.? Oh, most of it is here. So I have been to, in Europe and the United States, probably 25 different museums. It's a lot of museum work. You go in, you figure out with the curators what your plan of attack is. You go into storage. You open up vitrines if possible. You pull things out if possible. What's a vitrine? Um, vitrine is a, a case in the museum viewing space. Oh, I didn't so know So it's, yeah, generally the word that Egyptologists use. It's a very old-fashioned um, word. I thought it meant like a ceramic bucket of guts or a mummy case. No, no. Okay. Vitrine is essentially just a container, I think. Uh, probably a good Latin word. We could look it up. Okay. So, News to me, a vitrine is a glass display case. Did you know that? Like, if you tried to steal something from a museum, you would have to bust a vitrine. And also, don't do that. Now, the etymology for vitrine is Latin, means glass. It has nothing to do with a latrine. And then I was like, I wonder if there are vitrine latrines. So, with much hesitation, I googled glass toilets and happened upon a public bathroom in London just in the middle of busy city foot traffic that's made of one-way glass so no one can see in. But when you're inside, you can still see out. Like everyone's just walking around as if the walls were clear and it is a deeply anxiety-provoking object. And it's also rightfully listed as one of the six most terrifying restrooms in the world by Cracked.com. Okay, back to it. Before I ask Kara about Egyptian matriarchs, let's get to coffins. But I'm not an Egyptologist who's doing dirt archaeology, who's opening up tombs, who's excavating in any way. And I wouldn't know how to do it, even if I was given the opportunity. So leave that to the archaeologists. And would you say that a lot of your work deals with coffins, with paperwork, with... I mean, what when you are looking at artifacts, what's your bread and butter artifact-wise? Oh, my bread and butter artifact is a coffin, right. which is weird. And, right. and I start my... I have a public lecture that I've been doing around the country, a, a variety of them, but one is... Uh, the you know why women don't rule the world and mm-hmm. why they should and I start with me looking at a coffin and I say that I'm a coffin expert and it always gets a laugh right. because it's the weirdest thing that you can possibly imagine to tell people oh yeah I'm an expert in coffins you put any Egyptian coffin in front of me and I'll know early 18th dynasty late 18th dynasty when in the 19th if it's 20th or 21st and I can I can talk all about the details of these coffins it's strange and weird and you're thinking to yourself, why ever would someone devote their life to that? But if you, what was the last wedding you went to? Oh God, I feel like I go to like six a year, but I went to one like three weeks ago. And when the bride hits the aisle, Mm -hmm. you turn and you see her dress and you can make snap judgments about everything, about her socioeconomic level, her education level, her ethnicity, her religion, uh, her political perspectives. You can make snap judgments about all kinds of things. Age, uh, the age is staring you in the face, but maybe she's had really good plastic surgery. And so you can make some (laughs) other conclusions about age. It Who was knows? in LA, so yeah. Uh, yeah, a location, right? <laughs> Geographic regional identity. We could throw that in as well. A Hawaiian wedding is going to be very different from a wedding at the Pierre in, in New York. And this is how I view coffins. Oh. So the coffins for me are not, oh, the land of the dead and 
some sort of ritual and all of this religion and the god Thoth and, and Anubis and mummification and all of that is interesting, but it's been done to death and it's what Egyptologists have focused on the most. So I look at these coffins as social documents, as ways of understanding how the Egyptians themselves competed with the Joneses or the Panebs <laughs> or wow. how they displayed their place in the world and maintained their social power thereby. So they didn't have BMWs or Suzuki Samurais or Bentleys back then. So it was like, that's cool. We'll just wait until you're dead and then we'll scrutinize your coffin, buddy. And so I look at coffins to see if a person, well, let me put it this way. When you're hanging out with really rich people and they have conversations that go over your head because the details of what the really rich know about clothing or fabrics or real estate or hedge funds is it goes over my head and I have no idea what the hell they're talking about. Rich people are going to have a different cultural milieu and you can see the same thing in a coffin. There are amongst the very rich, the very wealthy, there are details of separation that only the knowledgeable would have been able to pick apart, critique, comment upon. And everyone else would have been like, ooh, blue, ooh, gold, ooh, whatever. And I like to see who's having a conversation with whom and uh, who are they displaying to? And I've applied this to, to mummies as well. There's a particular time period in ancient Egypt, uh, the 21st dynasty, when the elites of Egypt tricked out their mummies like you cannot believe. Really? They stuffed underneath the facial tissue. They would separate the skin from the muscle, make incisions like we wouldn't, almost in the same places that we make plastic surgery incisions, and stuff their faces full of this fatty sawdust material to give them a lifelike sort of look. Mm. They put in glass eyes. They attached false hair, sometimes real human, sometimes yarn. They would plaster the face and then paint it a nice skin color, giving it a kind of rouge if it was a female. They put peppercorns in the nose so it wouldn't collapse. They even stuffed arms and and chest when it got really, really extravagant. And I looked at this and I'm like, that's the strangest thing because a a mummy is meant to be hidden, bound in these bandages and and not meant to be seen by prying eyes. And yet they're pulling all, all of their wealth and putting it into their bodies and making their bodies into kind of standalone coffins. And I was able to conclude that we're talking about a society of very wealthy, elite and exclusive people who are showing 10 other people, a dozen other people, the bodies of their dead family members and are able to compete that way, keeping all of the unclean masses out of the conversation entirely. And it's a competition that didn't last very long. As soon as society changed a little bit, then this over-the-top mummification stopped and people again started putting all of their wealth into the coffins that contained the corpse Mm -hmm. um, on the outside rather than the inside, which is a very human thing to do. It's not a, a normal human thing to to buy an amazingly beautiful diamond ring and then never wear it, never show it. Or maybe it's like MTV's Cribs. I would compare it more to having a really nice bedroom that very few people are able to see, but it's a tricked out and amazing bedroom Uh that you invite a few people to see and then word of mouth spreads and people talk about it. Or there's a some sort of feature done in a magazine, but it's many steps removed and there's a way of gaining prestige that way. This is where it all goes down, folks. This is where the magic happens. So essentially... (laughs) When gender is not involved, all of my work involves social competition. Mm -hmm. Um, And 
And I think that's very much because of the way I grew up in Houston, Texas, in a very competitive environment. Big hair. Oh, big hair, big, big cars. cars, big everything. And, um, and I found it very tedious and annoying. And so I'm interested in how people do it and why they do it. Kara says that as a graduate student, she was reading about contracts and protocol of ancient artists, and her advisor, a very badass Egyptologist named Dr. Betsy Bryan, suggested, Well, why don't you look into uh, coffins and look into this book by Jak Janssen called, and wait for it, this is crazy, this gives you an idea of how academics work, Commodity Prices in the Ramesid Period. Doesn't that sound like you want to kill yourself? And I went through commodity prices in the Ramsey period, which is like a 700 page tome. And I found a section on coffins and I never looked back. And I've been working on this stuff since, oh my God, 1998. Um, Do you care about modern day American coffins or just Egyptian? Do you find yourself looking like when you go to funerals now, are you like, oh, it's a pretty good coffin? Well, luckily I haven't been going to as many funerals as I've been going to weddings, but funerals, we don't usually think of them as display opportunities. We put our display in other places. And so the funeral here is not quite as interesting, but in our culture, I see us avoiding the conversation until the very last possible moment and keeping it very quiet. We don't like to talk about these things or show it off. For more about how Americans die, listen to the Thanatology episode with Cole and Perry. She's an expert on death and dying, and I promise it's shockingly uplifting. She's amazing. Okay, but onward. I do want to go back and just for like a primer on Egyptology, where do you begin to understand it? Because number one, there's like 50,000 dynasties. Is a dynasty just a generation? Why do we call them dynasties? Oh my goodness. Well, first of all, let me go back to the first part of your question, which is what is Egyptology? And essentially we're, it's a complicated thing because you're taking a place And then you're applying all of these different academic pursuits to it. So you can be an art historical Egyptologist. You can be an archaeologist who's an Egyptologist. You can be a philologist, language specialist who is an Egyptologist. You can be a historian. Um, You can apply all of these different perspectives to this one place. And the reason that Egyptology separates itself out, which isn't necessarily good for it, but there's reasons, is that we have... 3,000 years, the same culture, the same religion, the same governmental structure, almost in an unbroken line. Yes, with ups and downs of prosperity and then collapse, but this this same rather inward-looking, rather protected place that maintains its cultural separateness even to this very day. And what is up with Egyptian dynasties? Like, what exactly are they? Let's break this down. So you start out with Dynasty 1, and then when that family changes, you move on to Dynasty 2, and 3, and 4, and in succession, right? Sometimes dynasties can rule concurrently with one another. So in time periods of great collapse and social um, problems, you can have dynasties like 7, and 8, 9, and 10 ruling concurrently with one another, and a great deal of overlap, and a great deal of regional contestation, so that there would be Dynasty 7 in one place, and 8 in another place, but at the same time. Okay. Some dynasties get more of our attention as Egyptologists, like I would say Dynasties 4, 5, and 6 of the Old Kingdom, when the pyramids were, were created at Giza. So side note, this era is known as Old Kingdom, around four to 5,000 years ago, also known as the Age of Pyramids, because they built a lot of pyramids, which served as tombs to kings. An important figure during this era was Imhotep, credited as being 
a chief architect of the step pyramids, and also just a general cool smart dude. Now, during the Old Kingdom, they built a bunch of stuff, and kings were thought to be godlike, and they were buried in these huge, well-known tombs. And then the Middle Kingdom, dynasties 11 and 12. So known as a Golden Age, this Middle Kingdom was 3,500 to 4,500 years ago, and it was known as a time of prosperity and stability, possibly due to high river waters, which made the land more fertile. Now, pharaohs were seen more as leaders of the people, and they were buried in secret tombs so that folks can come and steal their stuff. They're like, get bent, grave robbers. Get out of here. And then dynasties 18 and 19. So 3,000 to 3,500 years ago saw the New Kingdom, or the Imperial Age. This was the peak of Egyptian power and military conquests. Now, you got some famous-ass pharaohs during this time, like Hatshepsut, a lady king, Akhenaten, and his wife, Nefertiti, King Tut. So that's the briefest of rundowns, because trust me, Egypt has more hot goss than a million southern hair salons. But let's continue. These are the big dynasties that people like to focus all of their attention on. Because you're dealing with the centralized government, you get more production. You get grand temples being created. You get artwork of the finest quality. And you you have more history being written down because people write down more history when they're winning rather than when they're losing. Oh, oh God. Um, when you're dealing with civil war, it's not a time to sit down and, and, and write thoughtfully about what's going on. You're just trying to live. And so you have a dearth of documentation for those time periods. It sounds and like more. social media. Yes, yes. <laughs> and so... Social media, you mean when people are going through really hard times, they kind of disappear from yeah. Facebook. They're like, not going to post, not going to post about this breakup. You kind of disappear. And then when things are happy again, you, the pictures show up. Right. I hadn't thought about it that you way. That's I mean? nice. I do know what you mean. That's great. Um, okay. So we'll compare Egypt to, to Facebook. <laughs> and, um, and I think that works pretty well. But it's so much to get a handle on. This, the other problem with Egyptology is that because it is so protected geographically, it's less invadable and there's less competition going on. Even today, like think of the Arab Spring and what happened in Libya and Syria versus what happened in Egypt. In Egypt, people held hands and protected the Egyptian Museum in Cairo from being burned by Molotov cocktails flung in the revolution by whom we don't know and people will discuss it forever. In Syria, you know, millions of people have had to leave. It's, it will never be the same. The place is utterly destroyed. These are geographic realities, but Egypt, this protected place means that more stuff will be preserved. So you have a preservation that you don't have in other places, which means for the Egyptologist, you have an embarrassment of riches to commit to memory, to, to figure out wh where these things are, where, where they might have come from. Millions of objects are swirling around in a given Egyptologist's head, and it can be quite overwhelming. And I haven't, ta I haven't talked about the language. So right. to be an Egyptologist who knows anything about anything, you have to spend a year doing your Middle Egyptian grammar introduction mm -hmm. and learning your signs and figuring out how to look words up in the goddamn dictionary, which takes forever. And then you have to figure out how to read Heratic, which is the, the handwriting that the ancient Egyptians used as a shorthand for the hieroglyphic symbols. When, it, when you start learning hieroglyphics, do you just have a bunch of flashcards? How you do. Yes, really? we all make a bunch of flashcards and you start out trying to figure out the signs because these signs are these abstracted real things. And there's like, well, here, hold on just a second. I'll okay. put my microphone down Ooh. and we'll get a book out and you can see what you start with. 
Spring on the hieroglyphs. Spring, spring on the hieroglyphs. Spring, spring on the hieroglyphs. So at this point, Kara shot up from the kitchen table and she rushed off to another room. And like she was about to bust out some old glamour shots or like a really great snack, she excitedly came back with this hardbound reference tome. She cracked it open and it was a compendium of these precise perfect hieroglyphic diagrams with little English translation captions underneath. And these symbols just have a thrilling aesthetic, kind of like really elegant clip art of the ancient world meets hipster stick and poke tattoo flash, but obviously cooler. But when you start learning how to find signs... Oh my God, so many emojis. They're organized according to... So let's start at the beginning, right? Because people like to put themselves first. So the human goes first. And look at all the different signs (gasps) you have for the humans doing different things. You have a human who's getting hit with a stick, a human who's hitting somebody with a stick, a human who's got his arms up in praise. Honestly, these are just like emojis. It's crazy. It's true. So then we go... To the parts of the person, you'll have the hand, a phallus, a phallus emitting liquid. I just looked down and saw a phallus yeah. with liquid issuing from it. and I was There's like, so many penises in Egyptian language and iconography and art, and they're always erect. It's crazy. Dickapalooza here. Yeah, it's true. And then you get to the animals, and then, God help you, you get to the birds. Now, when you're first starting out, these birds all look the same. I don't know anything about birds. Flying bird, nestling bird, so how long do crocodiles. You study, how long do you study all these symbols? These symbols to commit to memory, um, you still, that's why this sign list exists. You're never going to be able to commit everything to memory. Not all of this stuff is going to be in your head at any one time. I do know people who have this stuff in their head. I am not one of them. Was there any point in learning all of this that you were like, you know what, I'm just going to work in insurance? There were nights when I would spend 12 hours on my on my Middle Egyptian homework. And I remember them. I remember having a hard time looking things up. I remember how time consuming it was for me. Um, and I remember some days I would I would give up a little bit. But the interest in my my bigger questions always continue to draw me. So even though the language is something I can do and I can teach, it's not what drew me into Egyptology. What drew me into Egyptology was all of the statues and the beautiful things and the way the kings are displayed and the way people show themselves, the, the art history of it. That's really what, what pulled me in. Mm-hmm. Um, and now it's the social history that, that keeps me there. And getting to your book coming out, which I'm very excited about, <laughs> um, I know that there's six women who rule the world, yes. six queens of Egypt. Yes. Now, female rulers were called kings. Queens were just the wife that's like saying the first lady isn't the same as saying the president. Right? Yes. Can you give me like a quick bio of each of the six? If you were had to be like, let's say this were a cast of the real world and you had to be like, this is the troublemaker. This is the one who's always making sure everyone drinks enough water. I think I can do that. Let's see. So just the title of the book where we have six queens of ancient Egypt, when women ruled the world. And I kept thinking, should it be female kings? No, because the first one was just a queen. Mm -hmm. So they were all queens at one point. And some of them were able to catapult into this position of female king. Mm -hmm. And you're right. The distinction is very clear. A queen in ancient Egyptian language is just the vessel of the king, a a helper, a, a womb, if you like. But a king for a male or a female, that's the leader. Leader of state. And so the Egyptians, when that woman became leader of state, they gave her the word and moniker king. That was that was what she deserved. Okay. 
All right, buckle up. You're about to get a quick tour of six very remarkable figures in ancient Egypt. And their stories, oh, these stories, they're more dramatic and triumphant and tragic than like any E-True Hollywood story. Like, deaths and usurping and gluing beards on lady faces and sibling romance. Just get ready. There's cobras. There's stabbing. Oh, okay. So Kara's about to spill some tea. And by tea, I mean red sarcophagus juice. All right, let's go. Now, the first is Mernaith of Dynasty One, and she maintains her queenship. She never becomes king, but she's buried like a king amongst kings with 40 sacrificial victims around her. <gasps> Men and women who were murdered or encouraged to commit suicide, we don't know, to accompany her into death. Oh. The 40 is nothing. The, her, her husband before her had hundreds upon hundreds, and her son after her had hundreds as well. Oh, my God. So... It's a it's a it's a very interesting part of the book. It starts out with a bloody bang, if you like, killing their wives, brothers, sons, husbands right in front of their eyes is probably one of the most powerful things that you can do. Oh my god! And that keening, that mourning that would have been created in those moments, is um, is is very powerful indeed. And Mernaith was in charge of deciding who was sacrificed for her dead husband. She's the one that's holding the bag, so to speak, that has the reins of power in her hand when her husband dies and her son is too young to rule. So she rules on his behalf as a queen regent, if you like. But then when she dies and she's placed in the ground, she's buried in this line of kings, just like all the rest. In the immortal words of Sean Carter. So she flies below the radar and yet wields power that is uh, that packs a visceral punch. The next woman for whom we actually have evidence is named Neferu Sobek of Dynasty 12. And she rules because there's no one else left. She's the last gasp of her dynasty. Her father was a great king, Amenemhet III, and he seems to have borne a son, Amenemhet IV, whom Neferu Sobek married, probably her brother or half-brother. And it may have been incest that, that made it so that there was nobody left to Oops. rule. It's a good exclusionary tactic of keeping everybody out of rule, but it's not a very good tactic for keeping a very healthy genetic line. So you, th- there's a good way to end a dynasty to come back to that dynastic question. Just bone your brother. Yeah, it, seriously. End and the line. This is the end of the train. This train will terminate here. All change. Please ensure that you take all your personal belongings with you. And there was nobody left to rule but her, and that was how they ended it. And then we get to Dynasty 18, which is when we have, for, for, for in Dynasty 18, we have two female kings. And the first one is Hatshepsut. Ooh, Hatshepsut. Okay, so this is a name that we should all know, but we don't. She disappeared from records after her death. Now, she started to rule on behalf of her nephew, who couldn't rule because he was very busy being two. Auntie, take care of this for a bit. She's like, I got you. And she ended up being crowned as king alongside this boy, whom she could never eliminate. And there was this co-kingship that stretched on until her death. Even though he was a baby? Well, she took the kingship when he was maybe nine years old. Okay. And then... And maybe because he was nine years old, she realized she better do it now. You know, she was able to rule with impunity without him interfering because what's an eight year old going to do? I have an eight year old. Uh, He's starting to get difficult. (laughs) I I mean, I don't have kids, but I don't even know if like nine year olds can make their own macaroni. No, she is the female king who did everything right. 
who was the most traditional, who ended up even showing herself in depictions as a man. Right. Not necessarily because she wanted to, but because it was what was expected. And of course, she's ruling next to this young and vibrant young man. She has to compete with him in a sense. And she's the one whose name we don't remember. Right. She's the one whose name we can't pronounce. She's the one that, who hasn't made it into our cultural memory. Who's in our cultural memory? Women who were thrown out of the window and eaten by dogs like Jezebel or Samiramis who um, slept with a different man every night in Assyria and had him murdered according to the, the text or Cleopatra mm-hmm. who of course used her sexual wiles to get to Julius Caesar and Mark Antony and ended up having to commit suicide according to the text. So mm-hmm. one of my points in the book is that that we remember the failures, the cautionary tales. And trust me, historians make it very clear that we should remember them so that we don't go down that dark path again. Okay, back to Hatshepsut. And it's okay if you don't know how to say this yet. I'm pretty sure everyone's like, Hatshep, what? But the woman who did it all right, who ruled when Egypt was most prosperous, who put Egypt with its best foot forward and left Egypt better than she found it, Hatshepsut, we don't really remember her. So she's the one that needs to be resuscitated. Mm-hmm. And it rem- it reminds me how for us uh, women in the workplace, when you do something really well, then it's easy to take credit for it. Mm-hmm. It's a very abstract thing. It's a very fungible thing. Whereas if you do something really badly, everyone's going to remember you having messed that up and nobody's going to want to take credit for it. So success, as many women listening to this will know, is uh, is pretty dangerous. You have to do success, but you have to do it by putting your own spin on it if you want to keep it. Now, along those lines, it was Hatshepsut who just went for it, like gender-bending fashion ideals by wearing a short wig and the headdresses of kings and a crown of ram's horns, sometimes even depicted bare-chested and with a false beard, making like pantsuit feminism seem very tame by comparison. So she might be the icon we all needed but never knew about, and I'll admit that as I drove to Kara's, I was repeating Hatshepsut's name like some sort of ancient incantation, so I wouldn't say it wrong. And I had done some research so I wouldn't sound like a total ignoramus. I already forgot half my equipment, so like the deck was already stacked against me. I had to compensate. And now her nephew pretty much had her erased from memory once she died, right? He did, but he waited a good 20-something years before he did it. And it was when he put his son on the throne and claimed which son he was going to have as king after him. He decided he needed to remove her. He knew that he wouldn't have been king at all if it weren't for her. Mm -hmm. That somebody else would have ruled as king. Somebody else would have moved him aside. But she protected him. And then he goes and erases her 20 years in. It's problematic. But that's what patriarchies do. They have to create this perfected and uncontested line and a woman is is messy and difficult they had to get rid of her uh depressing and then next is nefertiti and i hope you notice a trend that all of these women are here protecting men if a three-year-old comes to the throne what's going to happen some strong warlord's going to come in murder the kid hold the bloody knife and go look at i killed him and then he gets to be king mm-hmm. in egypt with divine kingship it's a different issue you can't do that it's a god that's standing in front of you so you invite a woman to come in and rule on his behalf 
Nefertiti's a little different. She's ruling as a co-king alongside her husband, Akhenaten, who's created this really weird and wacky new religion of Atenism, uh, worshipping this one um, solar divinity in the sky, changing Egyptians' temples, means of worship, funding the temples, really pushing Egypt into great upheaval. And during that time, he decides, for whatever reason, that the only person he can trust is his wife, his his greatest, his highest placed wife. He had many wives. Um, we can be sure that every king had a harem full of wives. And Nefertiti's story is the one that's really been being uncovered now, because when you think of Nefertiti, what do you think of? Oh, I think of that bust, that like very tall hat, high cheekbones. Yeah, I think of her as being like a this regal sort of uh, figure. The paragon of beauty, mm-hmm, this, yeah. this beautiful thing. We don't think of her as as being a power broker, as being somebody who puts Egypt back to rights again. And that's really her story, that she needs to be resuscitated for moving Egypt back in the direction of the old religious ways and kind of a, a truth and reconciliation king. Also, side note, Nefertiti had six daughters and everyone was like, oh, congratulations, that sucks. No sons. So her husband was like, well, shoot, okay, I'll just also marry my sister. And together they had a boy baby named King Tutankhamun. King Tut, as he is often called, maybe a little too casually, I'm not sure, took the throne at nine ruled for 10 years until his untimely death, around the age of 19. Now, experts suspect it was an infected leg fracture that took him down, but he also had like several strains of malaria. His mummy is the oldest known case of malaria on record, which is like pretty cool. It's another little feather in his cap. Now, he's said to have had a bit of a youthful temper, but he married, he had two children who did not survive infancy perhaps because his wife was also his half-sister. Just normal political stuff. So speaking of male versus female rulers... Which brings up the question of do females rule differently than men in Egypt today, anytime, do they? And when? Well, I mean, if you're Sarah Huckabee Sanders and you're working on behalf of the patriarchy... Look, everybody wants to make this a... Uh, an attack on a woman and equality. What about the constant attacks that he receives or the rest of us? The answer is no. But if you're a woman who has a different perspective not to protect a patriarch, then I think the answer is yes. And you might be more interested in cutting deals and thinking with nuance in um, making decisions that please more rather than one faction. I think that question needs still to be answered and we haven't allowed it to be answered because we don't let women into power. Mm-hmm. That's a different question, yeah. isn't it? Did I mention that her new book comes out on November 6th, which is also voting day for the midterms in the U.S.? Just saying, just circle that day, make a plan for it. A lot of good things happening. Our next queen to become king is a woman named Tawasret of Dynasty 19. And she's really a badass because she comes in as a queen to a king who dies precipitously and then acts as regent for a boy who's too young to rule, who's not her own son. And then when he dies, she rules as sole king on her own just for a couple of years. Okay, so this queen's husband dies. She also helps out a baby king. He dies, maybe by her own hand, and then she becomes king. And then she dies somewhat mysteriously. So if you've ever been nervous about like getting a promotion at work or asking for a raise, just go for it. Nothing can beat the workplace anxiety of ancient bloodline monarchies. Am I right? 
She's involved in a civil war as a prime operator on her own, like no other woman. And it seems she was punished for it. It's always very vague, but it seems that if she's the one that was, that was murdered, it makes sense that she's the one that's not acting on behalf of a patriarch. And we get a bit of a cautionary tale of what it means to be the woman who's ambitious for her own self. Um, it's, it's not a good place to be. She'll be punished for it. Mm And then, of course, the last one is the the most well-known, and that would be Cleopatra of the Ptolemaic dynasty. She's also punished for, for what she does, but Cleopatra is more canny than Tawasred in that she knows she can never rule alone. She ruled first alongside her father, Ptolemy Twelfth, and then she ruled alongside two brother husbands in succession, Ptolemy Thirteenth and Ptolemy Fourteenth. Ptolemy Thirteenth died in battle against her. <laughs> Ptolemy Fourteenth was poisoned by her. And then she had Ptolemy Fifteenth, who is Caesarian whom she bore after a great romance with Julius Caesar. And she's not shy about saying that this is Caesar's son and her heir. And she realizes that if she's going to keep her son on the throne or keep herself on the throne, that in the absence of any patriarchs around her, and she's done with all of those men who are trying to murder her anyway, (laughs) she's going to move on to the most powerful men in the world. And those are the Roman warlords. And she picks well, she picks Julius Caesar, who's a growing in his authoritarian power too quickly, too much. And his links to Egypt is probably one of the many reasons that he was killed on the steps of the Senate in the Ides of March. And then she moves on to uh, Mark Antony, mm-hmm. but he's perhaps not as as strategic a choice because if if he hadn't made some of those boneheaded decisions <laughs> in the Battle of Actium, perhaps we would talk about Cleopatra and Mark Antony in a different way. Mark Antony, quick primer, around 30 to 40 years BCE, before the Common Era, which is a more factually accurate and less religious way to say B.C. or before Christ. So, Mark Antony was a buddy of the assassinated Julius Caesar. Mark Antony, not to be confused with J.Lo's ex-husband, Mark Anthony, was part of a Roman triumvirate with Octavian. Now, Octavian was an adopted son of Caesar. Now, everyone in this little power triangle they had started getting bitchy and power hungry with each other. So Antony was like, you know what? I'm going to marry Octavian's sister just to smooth things over. But then he cheated on her and had three kids with Cleopatra, who already had a kid with the dead Caesar. Things started getting a little stormy. Octavian ended up going to war with Antony and Cleopatra and Egypt, and he creamed them in this naval battle at Actium. Things get even wilder after that. Man, if you like soap operas, you'll love Wikipedia. But before we go there, what was Cleopatra's deal in life? But she came the closest out of any of these women into setting up her own dynasty from her own womb, which is an extraordinary thing to do. Because if you think about divine kingship and why it works so well, it's because you have one man who can produce theoretically 365 babies outside of himself in a given year without any hormonal problems, without any danger of dying in childbirth. See hieroglyph from earlier. A phallus, a phallus emitting liquid. It's a, it's a very practical thing to give birth outside of your body. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. A woman, and I have done this, and it's not an easy thing. The the, the childbirth is is no fun. It's no fun, and okay. I did it naturally, so I can actually talk oh. about what it might have been for an ancient person. Oh God, it was okay. <laughs> that's a different that's a different interview, and um, so Cleopatra 
she produces one child with Julius Caesar and then three children with Mark Antony. She has twins with him and survives that oh ordeal. God. It's amazing. Not IVF. And she sets each one up to be a king or queen of one of the parts of her growing empire in the East. If they hadn't lost in the Battle of Actium, they, they would have been a competing dynasty to the, the Roman warlords who are trying to take over the world. But in the end, Cleopatra does not leave Egypt better than she finds it. She loses. Egypt becomes nothing more than a province of the Roman Empire and loses much of its... Um, well, well, Egypt is never going to be under native control again after Cleopatra until 1950. Wow. Now, a bit of a... a- like Romeo and Juliet situation there where she faked her suicide to devastate Mark Antony and then he killed himself and then she killed him herself maybe with a needle maybe with a snake what happened no one knows what happened and the only people that are telling us what happened are the Romans what better way I argue in the book for than for Octavian to claim that Cleopatra had committed suicide abandoning Egypt abandoning her children locking herself up in her tomb trying to destroy all of her treasures so that he could have them. She's she's obsessed with her own fame and glory. She's selfish to the end. She tries out poisons on on slaves so that she can see which one is is less painful according to the texts. There's all kinds of rumors being created around Cleopatra's death. The only one who knows how Cleopatra died is Cleopatra and she can't talk anymore. I think Cleopatra was was murdered. I have no way of proving this. I'll never know how she did it. But a story is certainly woven to make her look um, self-serving, manipulative, and and mentally unstable. Mm -hmm. And what do we use today to keep women out of power, but the idea that they are hormonally unstable, that they're not somebody that we can have in charge of our army and our military men, that we can't have them in combat situations. Their hormones, their... Their emotionality, I think, is what will always be used to to take women out of the halls of power rather than seeing that emotionality as the, the reason they should be there. And also, what it, just discounting the emotionality of men in power, I mean, it's all one needs to do is open Twitter to see that on full display. Well, I, I end my public lectures with you were talking about emojis with a series of emojis. And it's um, a panel that shows a man's day and it shows these faces and it starts out with this happy face and then this bland half smile and then it's sleeping. Mm -hmm. And then it says a woman's day. And you can imagine the emojis start out with a happy face and then she's mad and then she's crying and then she's happy again. And it just goes up and down and all around. And it's just this emotionality beyond anything. And it's exhausting. And I just put that slide up there and everyone, you know, they feel embarrassed that they're laughing. They feel embarrassed that there's truth in that slide that women do according to scientists, have more connection with not only their own emotions, but other people's emotions. Mm -hmm. They're better at reading emotions on people's faces. They're better at connecting with people and negotiating and figuring out how somebody's feeling and what they might need to do at at a given moment. Um, but, but these abilities are, are turned against them as something that is a liability. But as I point out in my lecture, I say it's the man's lack of connection to his emotionality 
to, to what he's feeling and his lack of ability to try out emotions without going all the way to the end that makes men throttle and rape and commit mass suicide with their children and their wife and and press the red button and create wars and, and do all of these things that women with their emotional connections and with their ability to try things out, talk it through. What might that be like? Um, th these are reasons why I think women need to be in power, particularly at this day and age when we're really looking down the edge of a precipice of, of social and civilized collapse. So men, non-men, everyone, just feel your feelings. It's healthy to feel your feelings and identify them so that you can address them. Also, of those queens and lady kings, I do have opinions on who's a Miranda, who's a Carrie, who's a Samantha. But listen, I feel like it's somewhat insulting. But also, I think that you should think of that on your own. And then you can just tweet me with your opinions. Anyway, with Kara's book coming out on election day, the discussion kind of drifted toward how the fall of ancient civilizations is mirrored in modern politics. Shirley Bassey's like, Man, it's all just a little bit of history repeating. You study kind of um, autocratic rule. How do you how do you liken that to what we are experiencing now? And is there any hope? At all. You know, it's an interesting thing. I didn't realize that I was studying an authoritarian regime until after I'd gotten my PhD. And I remember standing with my graduate students in front of Abu Simbel and these massive statues of Ramses II and going, oh my God, of course it's like Stalin. And it's a silly thing. And I'm almost embarrassed to admit it. But I dare say that most people who are attracted to Egypt and go to King Tut exhibitions don't think that they're lauding an authoritarian regime that yeah. understood <laughs> how to package power so that it's safe and like puppies and rainbows and not, they packaged it so that they weren't showing the bloodshed. They packaged it to show the divine protection. And we're drawn to that. We want somebody to take care of us. We want our, our divine father to come in and say, it's going to be okay. You don't have to worry about anything. This is very alluring and seductive for us. And so it's, it's an interesting thing now to have this 20 years of experience with this particular authoritarian regime and see our my own country go down the same path of authoritarianism and do it in a way so that people don't even know it's happening mm -hmm. to package it to package that authoritarianism so that it seems like it's decisive it's keeping you safe it's keeping the immigrants out it's keeping the woman in her place they may not say it directly but it's still the father and very much with evangelical Christianity thrown into this or Zionist Judaism, the divine father coming in to protect us and keep us safe. And the ideology behind what is happening today in the United States is so cleverly done and so on a par with what the ancient Egyptians did when they presented themselves that it's scary. No, we don't see Donald Trump statues in, you know, giant granite uh, relief and nor, nor should we expect it because we're too clever for that. But we have figured out to create the state TV in a privatized context. And we do have golden towers in the major cities bearing the name. So, I mean, it's not that far off. We know? do. And we do have the same. Now here, this is going to seem a little provocative. And I talk about this in the book, but 
Donald Trump also understands that his wife on par with him as a peer in ter- well, not in terms of age, but in terms of hierarchy, she has to keep within her place. She has to keep quiet. She has to worry about clothes. She's supposed to just worry about those women, womanly domestic things. Whereas he allows his daughter to go out there and be much more of a power broker. And the way he talks about his daughter, sexualizes his daughter in Howard Stern interviews, is very much akin to the ancient Egyptian king marrying his daughters and elevating them to great royal wife. And Ivanka Trump does play the role of the great royal wife in the ancient Egyptian authoritarian regime, that way of, of viewing things. So the the parallels to ancient Egyptian authoritarianism and what what we see in the modern day are are pretty damn striking. This idea of us versus them, exclusionary, um, xenophobic sorts of tropes. It's it's all there. Mm-hmm. Oh, do we have time for a few rapid yeah, fire yeah, questions? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A few quick rapid fire. But before we take questions from you, our beloved listeners, we're going to take a quick break for sponsors of the show. Sponsors. Why sponsors? You know what they do? They help us give money to different charities every week. So if you want to know where Ologies gives our money, you can go to AliWord.com and look for the tab Ologies Gives Back. There's like 150 different charities that we've given to already with more every single week. So if you need a place to go donate a little bit of money, but you're not sure where to go, those are all picked by ologists who work in those fields. And this ad break allows us to give a ton of money to them. So thanks for listening and thanks sponsors. KiwiCo. You know I love KiwiCo because making stuff and learning while you do it, the best way. And KiwiCo is great. They deliver seriously fun learning for kids of all ages. They have these hands-on projects and activities and each month kids receive crates that are engaging and that introduce them to things like science and technology or concepts and art. And I love that all the things you need are in there so you're not going to be running out to the store to get pipe cleaners. You're not going to run out of glue or something. And KiwiCo tests these crates with professionals and with kids to make them the best they can be. There's so many different projects depending on what your kiddo's interested in, what age or grade level they're at. You can discover the science of magic. You can engineer a domino machine. These make great gifts. I have given these to so many kids. And I also like that there's no commitment so you can pause or cancel crates anytime. So redefine learning with play. You can explore projects that build confidence and problem solving skills with KiwiCo. Get 50% off your first month on any crate line at Kiwi KiwiCo.com with the promo code Ologies. So that's 50% off your first month at KIWICO.com, promo code Ologies. They're going to love it. Did you know that Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day alive and thrive guarantee, they offer free plant consultation forever. Available 24-7, you can talk to a plant expert about your soil type, your landscape design, and they curate thousands of plants. They got climates, they got locations. I am stoked about this because I've wanted a fig tree for so long and I'm like, I don't know where to get the fig tree. I'm not quite sure where to plant it in the yard. And I went to the Fast Growing Trees website and I was like, boom, I'm in zone 10. This fig tree would work well for me. Done. And right now they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase 
purchase when using the code ologies at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using the code ologies at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com, code ologies. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Okay, so a little fun fact about how we make the show. So right before it gets published, I do like the third pass on the edit in case I want to tweak anything before it goes out. And I always do laundry during that time because I need to listen to the show as if I were a listener who's doing something else while you enjoy facts about capybara butts. And I would like to thank EarthBreeze for making that whole situation more pleasant. So EarthBreeze has these eco sheets that we use that I love. They're not a liquid or a powder. They're not a capsule. They look like a dryer sheet, but it's this ultra concentrated laundry detergent. So I don't have to spill a bunch of soap all over my hands and pants, which happens every time I have that giant heavy laundry jug. There's no measuring. There's no mess. There's no wasteful plastic jug, which makes me feel good about myself. And we all need that. It works on everyday stains and odors. And it's just one more step to making laundry day easier. So go wash your clothes, but make it easier with EarthBreeze. And right now, Ologies listeners can get started with EarthBreeze and save 40%. So go to earthbreeze.com slash ologies. That's earthbreeze.com slash ologies for 40% off your subscription. I use it while I edit this. I know I usually save my secrets for the end of the episode, but I'm going to tell you my secret favorite candy. It's Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. It's really Reese's anything, but Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the thing that I'm like, have I had a bad day? I get these. Have I had a good day? I get these. Chocolate, salty peanut butter, the textures. I love everything about them. Also that there's two. So I'm like, oh, I get this one for later, which is one second later. Anyway, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. I love you. That's all. If you're me, you can shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you. Found wherever candy is sold. And I am. Okay. Your questions. Uh, I got this question a lot. Emily Jackson, Ariel Belk, Iolanthe, and Maria Spensieri all asked. Cats. Cats. Why did, ancient, <laughs> why did ancient Egyptians worship cats? Well, wouldn't you worship a cat? I don't know. I like dogs. Personally. I'm, I mean, I don't like either. I was a vegetarian for 20 years and I'm not anymore. So I'm not an animal hater, but I'm definitely not an animal lover. Some people just aren't animal people and I'm one of them. The animals come up to me and I go, what do you want? What, what's going on? Well, okay. Hear me out. I looked it up and 68% of Egyptian land is desert. So like maybe... I guess it's a kind of like a big sandbox. Yes. A cat can be this sweet, calm thing. And then when she's pissed off... That cat can destroy you. Even a house cat could destroy your face if, oh, if she yeah. wanted to. It could kill me. Yes. But and did the Egyptians identify with that? Oh, my God. They loved that. So the thing about the cat, they, they thought of the cat mainly as a female entity. That's where they really put their attention. And they put their attention into this idea that the female cat can be this cuddly, sweet thing, or she will destroy this vehicle of keeping the patriarch safe, mm -hmm. this vehicle of making sure that the rebels will not come towards the king. In many ways, the cat is Sarah Huckabee Sanders. <laughs> <laughs> the, the cat cult. She's the one that that makes sure that the the barriers are put up to keep the king at the center <laughs> safe and to to keep the ma'at to keep the truth and justice of the authoritarian regime. I'm never gonna. Well, she does have cat eyeliner too. The cat um, eye. Yeah, she kind smoky of does. Cat eye. She kind of does. And then she uses that ash to create a perfect smoky eye. <laughs> <laughs> 
a bunch of people ask me this, and I don't even know how you're going to answer this. But simple question: How were the pyramids built? Do we? Oh know? no, we don't know, and that's really cool that we don't that we don't know, and that was it. Ancient aliens? It was not ancient aliens, but that's what the Egyptian kings want you to believe. Oh, so what better thing than for you to stand in front of those pyramids? Have you ever done it? Have you been to no, Giza? No, I've never been. You stand there and you look up and you just go, "Holy God, how is this possible?" And boom, they've got you. It's propaganda <laughs> that never stops giving because you look at it and you think that otherworldly powers built those pyramids, then there you are. Mm -hmm. Otherworldly powers did build those pyramids and it's called the Egyptian kings. When people think that ancient aliens built them or just aliens, um, you're buying into the propaganda of the authoritarian regime hook, line and sinker. So please don't do it. Okay. Just because we don't know how it was done doesn't mean that. Doesn't mean it, that, that you didn't have a hundred thousand <laughs> poor schmucks dragging and pushing stones. I mean, really... Uh, draft labor of your own people is the best explanation. Mm. The details of how until we take that thing apart, we're not going to really know. I hear that's going to be difficult. Yeah, it's going to be difficult to take a um, one of the the eight wonders of the world apart. The only last standing one. It's so, going to be a yeah. really big re yeah. renovation job. Or um, seven. There's seven wonders and people add the eighth. Sorry, that oh. was embarrassing. No, I, I yeah. didn't even, I couldn't have even fact yeah. check you because I didn't know. Seven wonders. Yeah. Uh, I felt like a real bozo that I couldn't remember all seven. And then I looked them up and there, are you ready? Colossus of Rhodes, Great Pyramid of Giza, Hanging Gardens of Babylon, Lighthouse of Alexandria, Mausoleum at Halicarnassus, Statue of Zeus at Olympia, Temple of Artemis at Ephesus. Confession, y'all. I hadn't heard of five of those. Had you? Okay, let me know how many you'd heard of because it's possible that the tourism boards or the Seven Wonders PR team is just snoozing on the job. Like, come on. Get an Instagram account. Tag things wonderful. A little brand awareness for the Seven Wonders could go a long way. Jessica Tubasing asks, do you have any belief in King Tut's curse or any other pharaoh's curse? G come on, get real with me. Curses, yay or nay? No, I don't believe in curses, but I believe in a lot more than you would think. I mean, I may be an academic who's interested in, in science and data-driven arguments, and, and, and I am, but... Um, you know, as, as I said, I don't know why I'm interested in ancient Egypt. I don't have any good explanation for that. I was going to ask if ever you thought maybe you were uh, just being inhabited by an Egyptian ghost. I, who knows? I have no understanding of what happens to me after I die. If I was someplace before, I, these things are, are interesting to me. Um, but but wait, what was the question again? Oh, King Tut's curse. Yeah. Um, there were lots of ways to die in the 20s before antibiotics came around. And, and um, oh, good. so I, I wouldn't. And, and Carnarvon was already of frail health. And that's why he went to Egypt in the first place. So if that's the way you're going to prove your curse, it's not going to work. So four months after his presence at the opening of King Tut's tomb, one Lord Carnarvon got a mosquito bite, which he cut shaving. Then he died. It's probably um, just some, nothing Purell couldn't have stopped. Maybe. Yeah, because it was that nicked infection on his cheek from shaving, right? So they Oof. say, and we don't even know how and why he died. Blood infection, possibly. But there was probably other stuff going on with that poor guy. And um, the stress of finding that tomb. Oh, oh my God. God. Oh. So maybe just the stress of a big discovery. Maybe. That could do it. I, I've seen Egyptologists who have found amazing discoveries, and it can be very, very hard on the on the body, psyche, and soul. Really? All of that attention, all of the competition. I'll just put it down to that. It's, the media destroyed Canar. <laughs> you don't need a curse when you have the interest of all of the people around you. So you don't need a curse, but in case you want more background on this, many tombs of the pharaohs were discovered in the Valley of the Kings on the west bank of the Nile across from modern Luxor. Now, many Egyptian tombs in general bore clear warnings. 
like one which read very straightforwardly, quote, Cursed be those who disturb the rest of a pharaoh. They that shall break the seal of this tomb shall meet death by a disease that no doctor can diagnose. Like, what? Okay. Duly noted. I'm out of here. But in 1922, Egyptologist Howard Carter was hired by George Herbert V, Earl of Carnivon, a.k.a. Lord Carnivon, to do some digging. Like, does it get any more, hello then, we're here to pillage your treasures? It looked like a bust. They weren't finding anything. Then a water boy tripped on a stone and revealed a hidden flight of steps leading to a chamber. A few weeks later, Lord Carnivon arrived in Egypt and going through these tunnels by candlelight, He's like backseat excavating over Carter's shoulder and he asks, can you see anything? And Carter sticks a candle through a small hole into an undiscovered chamber glimmering with golden burial objects and just says, yes, wonderful things. And King Tut's tomb was discovered. Roughly 5,400 items were found in the tomb, including a solid gold coffin, face mask, thrones, archery bows, trumpets, a chalice, food, wine, sandals, fresh linen underwear, and a dagger with an iron blade made possibly from a meteorite. It's like a very intense and becursed episode of Storage Wars. Now remember, four months later, Lord Carnivon died of, to borrow from Egyptian tomb warnings, death by a disease that no doctor can diagnose. Also, like a little on the nose, ghost kings, but I see why. What about that sarcophagus found this summer in Alexandria and filled with three skeletons and a bunch of magic red liquid? Well, I did a dive on Kara's Facebook to see if she had any thoughts on the matter. And in response to the question, should we drink it? She just commented, um, no. And there were eight M's in her um. Does she think it's cursed? No. They think it's sewer water. When asked by NPR, she said, sewage is enough of a curse, really. So, onward. Uh, Danielle Dankenbring asks, what's the strangest thing you've seen on or in a coffin? So mm. many dicks. Are there dicks on coffins? There are, but in um, there are dicks, as you say. Egyptologists like to say phalli. You'll see phalluses, erect phalluses all over the place. And you will see divinities standing there with their erect phallus all out and lovely. Mm -hmm. And you might see some masturbatory images. Because the beginning of the world and is from a masturbatory moment. And Osiris remakes himself after his death by masturbating himself, jacking oh himself God. off to new life. So you actually see dicks all over coffins. So that's, um, but she asked about inside a coffin. You might see an erect phallus figure depicted on the inside of a coffin. And Tutankhamun was buried, mummified with an erect phallus. What? Yeah. Yes. Buried in, with a mummified phallus in the erect position. No. He's the only one known to have had that treatment from the examination of the other mummies. Oh my God. But, and you wonder how they did that. You know, they stand the thing up and, and let it dry. And it's a tiny little phallus because, you know... It's just, it's all dried. And it reminds me of George Costanza and Seinfeld. <laughs> I was in the pool! 
You mean shrinkage. Yes. And apparently the penis was knocked off of the mummy. Google it, you guys. It's it's fun. Um, then they had to find it, and re- I don't think they've reattached it. He's just in there with the body. Oh no! Um, like it, just like a baby carrot, like a dried up baby of, carrot. Dried up baby carrot would work, yeah. Oh, and if you want, you can go to the Griffith Institute at Oxford has put all of the Harry Burton photos up live for you to see. It's called Anatomy of an Excavation. So put in Griffith Institute Anatomy of an Excavation Tutankhamun, and you will be able to find. You could probably even do a tech search Hello. for penis and you might be able to find it. So I I did. I looked this up and I mean, listen. Have you ever made beef jerky? Because it loses a lot of volume. Dehydration is a real bitch. But I did read that whoever embalmed him may have positioned him in such an alert way as a little FBU to his dad, who was a pharaoh who was more religious and I guess conservative. And I think that that is both hilarious and very cool. But Lamentably, the member in question went missing in 1968 for almost 40 years until someone found it in 2006 in the sand next to his body. It's buried like a cat turd. It's painful to even think about that level of disruption. I would like to extend my sincere cosmic apologies to King Tutankhamun that this happened just on behalf of all living humans and creatures left on Earth. Like, curses are put there for a reason, and I get it. This was not okay. But Kara shares her own experience in this realm. So coffins, the craziest thing you've ever seen on it. I've ever seen inside of a coffin, I guess, would be a dead body. And, you know, that's pretty amazing, especially when they're one of those stuffed 20-verse dynasty varieties. Those are are pretty intense. Are they still wrapped with makeup on underneath? They're supposed to be wrapped, but most of the bodies that I've seen have been unwrapped by um, people wanting to see what those mummies look like, usually at a time period when they didn't do it very carefully and they were just cutting through the bandages. So... So most of them are just displayed, vulnerably exposed. And um, should we wrap them again? I don't know. know. When I see a body in a coffin, I always say hello. And I say, I'm only here to look at your stuff. I won't disturb you for very long. And I'm so sorry to disturb you. But how are you today? And just trying to, (laughs) just in my head, have a little conversation with the dead person right there. And um, yeah. It doesn't happen as often as you would think, even though I'm a coffin expert. Most of the bodies have been removed from the coffins, which is sad. I wish they were all kept together. But when a piece goes into an art museum, they say, we are an art museum and this is not art. And they send the body off to some anthropological museum where it is usually disappears or something bad happens. It's very sad. That's why the 21st Dynasty individuals did that. Um, why they tricked out their bodies so much though, because coffin reuse, because I didn't tell you that's the other thing I do with coffins is I look particularly for how these coffins were reused Mm -hmm. at this time period of economic crisis, how often they were reused and they were reused so often that these 21st dynasty individuals made sure that their bodies could work as a transformational device as a kind of coffin without being in the coffin because they knew that they probably were going to have their coffins taken from them because they were taking their ancestors coffins and reusing them. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. I'm sure that you can probably look for signs of varnish and and yeah, you can see multiple layers, kind of like an archeological excavation where you're looking for stratigraphy. I looked it up. That just means looking at multiple layers of an artifact. I can sometimes see multiple decorative layers on a given coffin. By the time the 21st Dynasty came to a close, they were really good at reusing these coffins without people noticing and taking off all the old previous decoration. But there are still clues. 
here and there that are that are useful for me. You're going to need a flashlight though. I know. I know. And a UV light. Yeah, because I'm heading back to Egypt this September. You so, are? Mm-hmm. Oh my God. For three weeks. And, and yeah, Cairo Museum is the gift that keeps giving yeah. wonderful things in there. And now what do you, what do you hate about your job? What sucks? Email. (laughs) (laughs) It went off like six times. (laughs) I know. And I I don't have the notifications going on because they would just, and every day I get, you know, a good hundred emails and I'm chair of the department and I have to deal with, you know, grading problems or disruptive students or, you know, lectures who have problems. But um, yeah, the, the service of the job can be a little overwhelming and daunting. Mm-hmm. And I just try to keep up with that as I can. And that's why summer is my favorite. I get to read and think and write. And I don't get to do that that much during the year. But I'm using September uh, instead of reading more to go out into the field and collect more data. On coffins? On coffins, which is great. But And I'm looking at coffins that are so fugly, <laughs> as I like to say, that that everyone's ignored them. And I'm really excited um, to look at these pieces. They're coffins that when the high priesthood of Amun in dynasties 20 and 21 went through the Valley of the Kings and used it as their own personal bank vault and took all of the golden and silver and precious objects out of the tombs of Ramses II, Amenhotep III, Ramses III, all of those kings and recycled them for their own use to fund their own regime. They took those kings' bodies out, stripped them of all of their valuables, rewrapped them, and then put them in these fugly coffins, <laughs> reused, uh, ugly, ugly coffins. And um, and I'm very excited to look at these pieces because it's rare when ugliness enters a museum. But because Ramses III is buried in one of these fugly coffins, he's that, that coffin is kept in the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. So I get to... How ugly are they, though? Pretty, are they like Crocs? Are they just like one big croc with a well, body in it? The the faces are a little off. They're obviously not made for kings. They're made for other people. And their surfaces, if they were nice pieces, are often chiseled down because they were covered with gold. So a lot of that ugliness is because of theft. So their faces have been marred. But a couple of them are in coffins that were not made by very good coffin makers. And they just look a little, they're just a little off. Like imagine that, you know, when you're looking at your Facebook or your social media and someone makes a cake and they go, nailed it. It's like some of those coffins are like this. Their faces are just off and weird. And, you know, they didn't have the best coffin maker for some of these. And it's interesting that they're going to be like, yeah, we have the the most royal and divine Ramses the third. We have this coffin. So yeah, whatever. Put him put them in there. There, There's some ugly art out there in the world. Oh, that's delightful though. Yeah. So her son's babysitter was due home any minute. Also, thank you so much, Kara, for making time for this. So we wrapped it up with one last question. Now, what is your favorite thing about Egyptology or your job? Like the thing that just gives you butterflies that you're like, I love this so much. Oh, that's hard. Uh, But I, I think I know how to answer that. I do. It's my great, it's a sword that cuts both ways. It's my greatest um, weakness as well as my greatest strength. And that would be my ability to communicate to people who don't do Egyptology and my interest in talking to normal people (laughs) who don't devote their lives to these 30 dynasties with all of their intricacies and all of their um, language and, and material complexities. And I like telling a story. I like connecting with an audience and I, I, I like making the ancient world come alive again. And when I say that's my greatest weakness, it's because academics, they like to 
make sure you're moving the field forward. And so I have to constantly ask myself, am I moving the field forward by doing this kind of work? And so thus I have Kathleen M. Cooney and Kara Cooney, and I have to negotiate both sides of my Egyptological being, if you will, to try to move the field forward with my Coffin's work, social history work, and then to also communicate with the public and, and tell people why the ancient world is relevant at all. So whether that gender studies work, my book, When Women Ruled the World or The Woman Who Would Be King, move the field forward or not might be debatable. Yeah, the humanities are not building factories and the humanities are perhaps not employing hundreds of thousands of, of factory workers, but they're helping us to understand where we've come from, where we are, where we're going. And it is as relevant as, as anything I can possibly imagine. And where can people gently stalk you? Where can they find you? Oh, you can stalk me in so many places. Um, <laughs> I have a Facebook page, which is still my biggest, but there it's my favorite medium because I can post articles and, and get more academic with what I'm saying. And you'll find me on Facebook under Kara Cooney Egyptologist. You'll find that I am an anthropologist at heart and I'm interested in all kinds of stuff. And I just post things that are of interest to me. Um, and then I have an Instagram page, mm -hmm. Kara Cooney. And I don't post on that quite as much. Um, but I do, it's more personal too. So if you're interested in my private life, you could go there. <laughs> I hate LinkedIn. Oh God. I hate it. I, I get messages. If you ever try to write me on LinkedIn, forget it. I don't look at it. I forgot my <laughs> password on purpose. I don't want to know anything that happens on LinkedIn. Um, no one will ping you there. Okay. Good. And then circle back as they do. Good. Good. Um, and the book comes out on November 6th. It does. It's going to be an interesting ah. November for yeah. everybody. What are you going to be doing on November 6th? Oh, I'll be watching the polls like yeah. everybody else. I, I don't know how much TV I can handle. I haven't been able to watch too much TV lately. I like to consume my end of the world apocalyptic narrative through print <laughs> rather than picture. And um, babysitters here. Here's my oh, women in power. Go. So you can pick up her 2014 book, The Woman Who Would Be King, or pre-order her new one, When Women Rule the World, Six Queens of Egypt, which is out very soon. You can also find her show Out of Egypt or The Secrets of History's Lost Queen on Discovery Channel. Heads up, I believe that is available on Amazon and Netflix. She's also a recurring expert on the History Channel's Digging for Truth. So find her shows, streaming, just in general, enjoy her presence on planet Earth. To find more of Ologies, we're at Ologies on Twitter and Instagram. I'm Allie Ward with one L on both. And there's a Facebook Ologies podcast group. You have to answer a few secret questions to be admitted into our underground chamber. Thank you, Aaron Talbert and Hannah Lippo for adminning. Uh, you can become a patron and submit questions and see what ologies are coming up at patreon.com slash ologies. Uh, for merch, head to ologiesmerch.com. You can pick up some of the brand new fall stuff in mustards and maroons and collegiate crested shirts and such. They're so delightful. Thank you, Bonnie Dutch and Shannon Feltis for designing and handling merch. And thank you to all four sister uncles for the wonderful time in Portland this past weekend at the first ever Camp Ologies meetup group, which was just a treasure trove of nice, curious people looking at bees and trees. Thank you, melatologist Mandy Shaw and dendrologist Casey Clapp for coming out and hanging out and teaching us so many good things. Um, thank you to Stephen Ray Morris himself, very much a cat person who makes each episode so much better. Check out his kitty themed podcast, The Purcast. If you don't believe me, dude knows his cats. It's an exceptional podcast. Uh, Nick Thorburn wrote the theme song. And now if you stick around to the very end of the show, 
you know, I tell you a secret. This one is super, super embarrassing, but that's the nature of getting you to listen through the credits. Okay, so the first time I went to record with Kara, and my Zoom wasn't in my little vintage recording purse, I was mortified. Like, I was like, how could this happen? How did I leave the house without this? So we rescheduled, I left defeated, I smothered my sorrows with a pastry at a cafe, and I went to get my wallet out of my backpack, and I found my Zoom recorder in there. So I had it with me the whole time. It was just in the backpack and not in the vintage equipment bag where it should have been. I could have recorded this the first time. I didn't actually leave it at home. It was right there. So that's even more mortifying, I think, than just plain forgetting it. Thinking you forgot it, but really it was next to you the whole time in a different bag. So Kara, I'm so sorry. I I hope that you stopped listening at the credits. Um, anyone else, if you're out there beating yourself up for making a mistake, just know it happens to all of us. Even world-renowned Egyptologists arrive without flashlights. Let's all forgive ourselves. Onward, upward. All right, keep asking smart people stupid questions. I swear they love it. I think they love it. I'm pretty sure they're okay with it. I think they love it. Okay, bye-bye. Pachydermatology, homeology, cryptozoology, lithology, nanotechnology, meteorology, Tell me, baby girl, cause I need to know